This week on Geek Explained, Avengers Endgame officially hits theaters this week. So join us on a retrospective of the MCU up to this point as we look to the past, the present, and the future of the Avengers. Welcome back to Geeksplain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Gazana, and today's episode is all about Avengers Endgame. Uh, Avengers Endgame is officially dropping technically Thursday night, technically Friday morning, um, as of this as of this recording. Um, and I'm stoked. I'm super, super excited about this film. We've been waiting for it for a year but it feels like a lifetime um the cliffhanger ending of infinity war with the snap uh what a lot of people have dubbed the decimation um where half of the life in the entire known universe just disappeared uh left a lot of people really itching to see what part two has in store and uh to marvel's credit they have kept it pretty close to the vest um and uh we are finally going to find out what's going to happen avengers endgame finally had its uh red carpet hollywood premiere this past week where some people got to see kind of what it's about uh there were pre there's a press screening and there have been reviews going up spoiler free mostly and um i'm super excited i'm really 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 excited to see what happens uh, i have my tickets super just pumped uh, i have that entire day requested off uh that entire day off work i'm just gonna binge every avengers film leading into endgame and uh it's gonna be glorious i'm really excited but before we get into that we also have a packed show for you today so we've got our normal news segment we have our weekly review for this week's episode of the doom patrol we have this week's comics countdown and the conclusion of our non-official rankings of the mcu we've been counting them down from 21 to 1 and this episode we are finally breaking into the top five the best of the best the cream of the crop but before we get into all of that, let's kick off uh, this week's episode with our news session. So um, I kind of sat down. It's funny. I sat down to do my notes this week, and uh, I was really feeling like, oh, this news segment is going to just breeze by. There's nothing that really happened. And then all of a sudden, while I was doing my notes, stuff just kept happening and happening and happening. So I had to kind of pull it all together and uh, we're going to kick it off with a little bit of comic book news. And it's a little bit sad. It's sad for me. Sad for me, I think, um, as a fan of this series. But it was... Or this past week marked the uh, release of West Coast Avengers number 10, and it has been announced that that is the final issue of the series. Uh, the issue 
ended on a really kind of funny note and it was uh, it was bittersweet i loved west coast avengers it was written by uh kelly thompson with a great cast of artists really bringing to life a team that has kind of fallen into the annals of history when it comes to uh, marvel comics and the avengers and i was really sad to see it go i really enjoyed the book i hope it comes back at least this iteration of the team if they want to swap some people out okay but i loved the dynamic for this team i loved the run of the series for as much as we got and i'm really sad that it ended at 10 issues next up uh we got an announcement and the official confirmation that spider-man far from home which is the only officially confirmed marvel movie post endgame the whole uh black widow uh solo film doctor strange 2 guardians of the galaxy 2 all have people attached to them but they don't have release dates there's no trailers there's no nothing so Far From Home is, as of right now, the only post-Endgame Marvel film. And it. a lot of people thought that that was going to be kind of the start of Phase 4, that we were going to get a whole slew of new uh, films, and that Far From Home was going to kind of kick that off. However, um, it was recently revealed that Far From Home is the final film for Phase 3, kind of in the same vein of how the first Ant-Man film was the uh, closing chapter or like the epilogue for Phase 2. Um, Spider-Man Far From Home is going to cap off Phase 3, where he's, uh, Endgame is supposed to end the uh, Infinity Saga, as the Russo brothers have kind of coined the first kind of overarching plot through the first three phases uh in gaming news we also saw the release of critical mode for kingdom hearts 3 i know a lot of people who uh played kingdom hearts 3 were are big fans of the series really talked about how the game was too easy for them so hopefully the release of this critical mode is going to up the difficulty and really uh give players a challenge i played it on proud mode and there were times where i too thought it was a little too easy so i'm interested to go dive back in and see just how much has changed with the critical mode also in gaming news god of war uh celebrated its one-year anniversary after being released on the ps4 last year and they announced a documentary that's going to be debuting on ps4 youtube called raising kratos where it's going to document the entire development process for this game this really was a game that changed the fundamental uh concept of god of war from its gameplay to its narrative structure it really and pardon the pun, really changed the game when it comes to God of War. So I'm excited to see this documentary. I'm really interested to see uh, kind of all the things that went into putting it together. Um, this week also, along with a bunch of other things going on, uh, marks the finale for Gotham. Gotham, who has been really, I think, killing it this season. Season 5 started off, I think, with a lot of skeptical people. But I think they've been knocking it out of the park every episode because they finally leaned into how ridiculous it is. And uh, this is going to be the finale, the final episode that does the full time jump, uh, connecting the origin story of Bruce Wayne with the debut of the Batman. So if you're a fan of Gotham, if you're a fan of Batman, if you've been following the show, if you haven't been following the show, I think it's definitely going to be an episode to check out. 
Uh, in all other DC news, the DC Universe streaming service slash app officially expanded its comics library. Over 21,000 comics were added to the app and the service, which just as a comics writer, not comics writer, comics reader, is just incredible i'm really excited uh they have pretty much everything up to a certain point i think it's like up to uh this time last year so i'm really excited to see some of the old school stuff on there some of the stuff that i would love to reread um i've been itching to jump in jump back into and reread 52 which was a uh, limited series that went spanned an entire year it was a weekly series Really, really good stuff. It was the immediate follow-up to Infinite Crisis. I'm really excited to jump into that again. Also in DC News, though it's a little bit sadder DC News, uh, it was revealed that a potential Superman family cartoon was uh, scrapped. And the pitch for it kind of centered around the uh basically a kids a kid-friendly silver age inspired version of the uh tomasi and gleason superman rebirth run featuring superman lois and their son john getting into all kinds of uh, saturday morning cartoon hijinks i am devastated that this didn't make it past the pitch phase um they uh showed some of the concept art which was done by i believe the uh the guy who did the original concept art for Spectacular Spider-Man, another favorite of mine. And, uh, man, this is tough. This is a tough pill to swallow that this uh, didn't end up happening. I'm really sad about this. But either way, um, it's cool that this even was thought up, that this even got to the pitch phase. And maybe, hopefully, especially with this DC streaming service, we might see something along these lines in the future. I would be a big fan of that. But the biggest news this week is that Endgame officially drops. Um, it's just, it is the most anticipated movie that I can think of ever. Uh, in my memory, there has never been as much hype and as much anticipation going into a film as there is right now. Not even the anticipation and the hype going into the very first Avengers movie was this high. So I am just beyond words at how excited I am. This is culminating a over decades long journey up to this point, and I'm really excited to jump into it. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes also, for whatever stock we all put into Rotten Tomatoes scores, uh, released its official tomato meter for Avengers Endgame, and it is sitting pretty at a 98%. We'll see if that goes up or goes down. Typically, uh, when they do the first tomato meter reveal, it, it'll typically go down like five or six points. So I'm hoping that this kind of stays in the 98%. I would love for this to go up to 100%, but we will see. We will see what happens. Um, this movie is set to break all the records. Again, this is the film that just their ticket sales alone crashed the AMC uh, ticketing site. This could be, this could possibly knock off James Cameron's films as being the top dog, the most, uh, the highest grossing film ever. And I think even if this doesn't end up being an awards contender, even if it doesn't go to the Oscars, this film deserves that much. 
to become the highest grossing film of all time. And I think it can do it. If nothing else than buy the pre-sale tickets alone. So, um... Oh, I'm just, I'm so excited, guys. So, uh, without further ado, that's going to wrap up the news segment, and we're going to jump into the main course, the entree of this episode, and that is going to be our full retrospective, our full um, predictions, and our look, our special look into Avengers Endgame. We're in the Endgame now. And here we are. It has been a long, long, long road, but uh, Avengers Endgame is finally upon us. So I kind of just wanted to do like a, I don't know, like a retrospective, I guess, on the stuff going into it, my personal feelings about it, my memories, maybe throw in like some predictions. I got some notes here. I also thought it'd be kind of cool to do a... Uh, kind of like a timeline for the original six Avengers who are going to be front and center for this story. So all of that is going to be kind of making up the main meat of this episode. So um, first update, got my tickets. I have my tickets, uh, got them when they went on sale. I uh, panicked a little bit because the day that they went up, I was at work. I was at work at my day job and I was panicking the entire day because I just didn't know if I was going to be able to get tickets. And as soon as I got off work, I drove home, got back on my Wi-Fi and was able to purchase tickets. And luckily, and I don't know how this happened, um, we were able to get tickets for this Thursday, uh, I guess as... I dropped this. I'm probably going to be dropping this on Thursday um, today. So we got the tickets for uh, 1045 tonight. And as I was able to, I don't know how this happened. We were able to get tickets for the seats that we always sit at in the theater. It was the craziest thing. They were the only two seats that were available that weren't in the front two rows. And I'm just so excited. I'm really, really excited for this film. Um, Next week, expect a, uh, a full review. I'll probably uh, try my best to get up like a little um, extra this weekend just to get my raw feelings and reactions and emotions on the film. But um, it'll be non-spoiler. I'm going to do my best to not spoil anything. It's going to be difficult, though. I've watched a couple reviews where they've tried to uh, not spoil anything, and they're basically just like, we can't talk about this film just we can't so um expect a little mini uh little extra talking about that but the next week uh full-blown spoiler review for this film um yeah so that's next week right now i kind of wanted to talk about like my experience with the mcu kind of my um i don't know my memories about the mcu up to this point and um, I'm sorry if I ramble or I drift off a little bit, but uh, this has been 
11 years in the making. And I remember, I remember way back, way back during, uh, during 2008, uh, the first Iron Man coming out. The first Iron Man, like many people, I thought I didn't put a lot of stock in. Um, Marvel really hadn't jumped with both feet into the uh, movie making game. They'd had, you know, they dipped their toe in a little bit with Spider Man and X Men, but both of those were made by other studios. And not just that, they were, ah, for lack of a better term, they were more focused on the director's vision than actually translating the characters. Uh, the famous line from the first X Men What, would you rather be wearing yellow spandex? Yes. Yes, I would rather you guys be wearing yellow spandex because that's comics accurate and it looks way better than these trashy leather black suits you're wearing. And they got that right in first class and onward, but still. But I remember walking into the theater not really expecting a whole lot, especially because Iron Man up to this point, and this, I guess, can be argued, uh, Iron Man was a B-list superhero. No one was looking at Iron Man in, two, in the early 2000s and going, that's the poster child for Marvel Comics. And around this time that the movie was coming out, they really were trying to raise his stock in the comics realm by instigating Civil War. This was when Civil War was happening in the comics to really boost his popularity and boost um, the global eye on him as a character. And... I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't really know anything about Robert Downey Jr. I wasn't following his story, which is remarkable. But um, I just looked at him and I thought, he looks like Iron Man. The trailers look like Iron Man. Could be Iron Man. So I uh, went into this film. I saw it with my parents and uh, my brother. And I was blown away. I was blown away by the film. Um, it was just, it was a thrill ride. And even when I was talking about it for the rankings for this, it still holds up. The CGI is a little dated. Um, you could tell time has passed since uh, this film was made just from the effects. A little bit of the writing here and there, but um, it still holds up for the most part. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And I remember sitting in the theater after the film ended, just talking to my, my dad after this incredible movie just talking about how excited we were we sat all the way through the credits we didn't mean to but i was just so excited about the film and we were talking about it the whole time and uh there was a bunch of people in the theater so we didn't really feel a need to just get right up and go so we were talking we're talking we're talking about how good the film was how fun it was how much better it made the iron man character and then the credits end and we think you know oh time to go let's get out of here um and then an extra scene pops up following the reveal to the world that Tony Stark is Iron Man. Uh, he returns home and finds a man there. He doesn't know who this man is. He's never met him before. But when he asks, you know, who are you? Wouldn't you know it, Samuel L. Jackson steps out of the shadows and says, my name is Nick Fury. And they banter back and forth a little bit and it all culminates in the final line where he says, I'd like to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. And I remember freaking the fuck out. Like, I freaked out. Not because, oh, we're going to get more stories with Iron Man. Not because, oh, we're going to get more stories expanding the um, Marvel Comics universe. Not, oh, we're going to have an Avengers movie. I turned 
and let everyone in the in the entire theater who was still there know there's gonna be a Captain America movie. And I was over the moon moon about it. I just I am a longtime Captain America fan. I've been a Captain America fan since I was very little, and I was so excited to get a Captain America film. There had been attempts to bring Captain America to the silver screen uh, in the past. Um, he went through the same process that I think a lot of the old school heroes who have been around for a long time went through where they had uh, some limited like black and white uh, serials like in the 40s and 50s and then um, there were the this there was this awful duology of films where they really weren't Captain America films they were basically just Captain America in branding only and they're awful they were made in like the 70s and then the culmination was this awful 90s Captain America film. It was in the early 90s, and it was ridiculous. It's an example of leaning too, like, so heavily into the inspiration that is the comics that you end up coming out looking cheap and campy. And I love it. I love that film. I have never been able to find a copy of it. I've always wanted to find a copy of it because it is so good bad it's amazing um if you just google just google right now 90s captain america movie and you will see why it is so bad that i want it um but yeah there had never been a good captain america movie up to this point and so come you know 2010 2011 around that time i went and I was so excited for Captain America the First Avenger I went to uh, my local Foothills Mall back in Tucson and uh, I went to the midnight premiere with my friends Brendan and Juan, and we were stoked. Um, I, at that point, was just a junior Cap fan in comparison to today, where I brought my shield. I had a shield. I had a, it was like a stainless steel shield, and it was bad. It was the kind of shield that you would spend like 80 bucks on on eBay, and it was you know, just haphazardly put together. The paint was off. Um, there was one really cheap, like, metal handle that was just, like, covered in duct tape to uh, give you some kind of grip without just holding onto harsh metal. The, ha the handle kept popping off. We kept having to re-rivet it. But I loved that shield. I'm a very sentimental person, so if I have a first of anything, I will love and cherish that thing forever. And this shield is no exception. I love that shield to death. But it was not well put together. That being said, I brought that shield and I wore it with pride coming into this theater. Didn't know if they were going to let me bring it in, but I brought it anyway. And uh, my friends Brennan and Juan had gone to the Walmart, which was literally right across the street, and got the little handheld Captain America shields that were like the size of like maybe a dinner plate and had like a Velcro strap. And we had a couple hours. We got there at like... 10:30, I think, before the movie started, and we were committed to goofing off and doing what we what we called shielding. Now, to tell you, to explain what shielding was, and I recognize this is extremely dumb as I'm telling you this, and this isn't interesting at all. But um, when I was when I was uh, in 2010, 2011, for those of you who either weren't born yet or I've completely forgotten about it. There was a thing called planking. And planking, for those of you who don't know, is going to really 
realistically any place and just laying flat on your face across something simulating like a plank on a pirate ship or whatever you'd see people on top of like mcdonald's signs planking on top of cars the whole thing it was crazy it was like a lot of the ridiculous uh memes that come out today and like tide pod challenges as dumb as that is this was like the cool thing to do in 2010 and 2011 and we came up with shielding where we were essentially just planking but with our shields and it's dumb there are pictures of us doing that and it is so dumb but it's amazing and i had a blast doing that so we're getting ready to go into uh the theater and i notice because this was back when and i haven't been to the foothills mall in years literal years i hadn't even been in the foothills mall for a couple years before i moved from arizona to la and i this was back when they were um Every single time a movie would premiere, they'd have these giant banners in the main lobby. These giant, you know, I, God, they had to be like 15 foot tall banners. And they, of course, had one for Captain America, the first Avenger. And I remember just looking at it and being like, that is the coolest thing I had ever seen in my entire life. So we went, we got our tickets, we went out, we were doing our dumb shielding thing and then we're coming back and walking towards the showroom and i see that the um that the banner had fallen from the ceiling onto the floor i am going to preface this and i am going to uh give a quick disclaimer what i'm about to tell you is probably a crime i probably committed a crime here and i um don't regret any of it. So we, I see this banner that's laying on the floor and I look around, there's no employees even looking at it or even noticing that it fell. So what do I do? I walk over, I roll that banner up and I take it with me into the showroom. I slide it underneath the seat, fully expecting a theater employee is gonna come over to me and tell me, hey, you can't take that. That is the property of the theater, give it back. But the entire time watching this movie, of course, loved it. It was amazing. Um, I loved every second of it. The, the, the movie ends, and we're sitting there, and we're looking around. No theater uh, employees come to talk to us about it. So once the uh, post credit scene goes, where uh, I think we see uh, Nick Fury talking to uh, Dr. Selvig about the... No, that wasn't the post credit scene. post credit scene was... Um... No, 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 the post Because that was Thor's post credit scene. The post credit scene for Captain America, the first Avenger, is Cap, you know, punching the, uh, the punching bag in the gym. And he hits it off. Fury comes over to him, says, you know, I got a job for you, or I got a mission for you. And uh, Cap says, you want me to go back into the world and... Fury says, I want you to save it. And then we get this amazing sizzle reel. The first footage that anyone would ever see of the first Avengers movie. And it was glorious. It was amazing. I loved every second of it. But after that wraps up, we're looking around. No theater employees come to talk to us. So I pick up that giant ass banner. I walk out of the theater. And I still have that banner to this 
day. It is gigantic, it is ridiculous, I've never found a place to really put it up and let it fly because it is just such a huge banner, but I love that thing to death and I, I am so proud of it. It's a piece of history and I love it, I really do. But um, yeah, so that was my experience with the first two big MCU films for me. And when the Avengers came out, I wanted the premiere to be something special. And I had an idea. Uh, the idea was to bring together a group of remarkable friends to see if they could cosplay something more. To see if they could work together when we needed them to. To fight the battles that we never I'm sorry, I got on a tangent there. Um, so I got a group of people together, a group of friends, to cosplay the entire Avengers cast. Um, all the original Avengers, and we whipped those costumes up, and we went to the premiere, the midnight premiere, in full costume, and it was the time of my life. I look back on that night so fondly, because we were just there as the most ridiculous people. You see it all the time now. You see it all the time. Anytime there's a Marvel film that comes out, anytime there's an Avenger, Avengers film that comes out, you see um, people dressing up, you see groups together. But for me, this was back when it rarely happened, if ever. If ever. And, ah, oh God. I just, I love, love that, the memory of that night. I will never forget anything that happened. I just, I, ah, man. So I love the movie, of course. We love the first Avengers film. It is uh, just incredible. And we, well, I, I will say I, wanted to replicate that when Age of Ultron came out. So I got most of the people who were involved with that first iteration when we got together for, uh, for the first Avengers movie to cosplay a new group for the Age of Ultron premiere. And we were able to get everybody together. Uh, a friend of mine even drove down from uh, Phoenix, which is about an hour and a half, two hour drive, uh, knowing that he would have to be back at his job at eight in the morning to do this uh, midnight premiere with us. And shout out to Ben Gardner. He's amazing. Um, and we, again, had the time of our life. The movie, I will say, and as we've talked about, um, wasn't, I don't think, as good as the first Avengers film, but I still loved it all the same. And we ended up having a fantastic night. There are photos of that, too. I love those photos. I love the fact that we were able to get, to get people together and replicate what we did again. And then Infinity War came out. And at that point, I had moved away. I wasn't um, able to get people together to do uh, cosplay. We all live busy lives now. We're all adults. Uh, this stuff happened while we were while I was in college, and you know it was a little bit easier for everybody to get together for this kind of thing. So um, I wasn't able to uh, get everybody together for Infinity War, but I went and saw it all the same with. Uh, two of my closest friends, Chris and Jessica, and we saw Infinity War. It was just the three of us, and I just remember that that film was an experience. It's not even 
kind of fair to call it a movie because that film really takes you on a ride. It is truly an experience. It is a cinematic experience. And uh, the thing that I remember the most about that night, not just, it wasn't really the film because I would go on to see that like three more times. It wasn't really uh, anything about like the specific going to the theater or anything about the film itself. It was coming out of the f- out of the theater, uh, just being really shaken, really quiet. There was a hush among the crowd, um, among the audience, among me and my friends. And uh, it was just this silence, this knowing silence of like, we just saw something like incredible that is also incredibly like soul shattering. And um, I'm sitting in my car and I'm just kind of trying to digest everything. And all of a sudden I get a call and I don't recognize the number. I don't know what who is calling me and it's like you know almost one in the morning i don't know who's calling me and i answer the phone and it is uh it's my friend john and his girlfriend taylor and they called me because they had also just gotten out of watching it back in arizona and they needed to talk to somebody and i i adore that memory I adore the two of them, but I adore that memory because even though we hadn't seen each other in a little while because we had all kind of moved away, um, even though we were living busy lives, uh, we really, uh, we don't live near each other at all, they wanted to call me and we wanted to talk to each other. And I think that's something that's so beautiful about the MCU as a whole because it has brought so many people together from all walks of life. I have friends who I would never have ever talked to them or even gotten to know them if it wasn't for connecting over the MCU. And it is, um, it's something special, it's something beautiful. And I will always remember Infinity War for that, that call that I got. Um, real quick, uh, following that, I, I get really sentimental again, but, um, Real quick, I had a listener ask if I could uh, look at this uh, video that the Daily Hit put together. So um, I know it's a little late. She asked me to do this, uh, I think like a week and a half ago. So it's a little late, but I wanted to kind of put it in here. Um, This video was put together by the Daily Hit and essentially was the movies that you need to watch if you want to know what's going on in Endgame. It's like the essential MCU list. And it was like a top seven, I believe. And these are seven films that they believe that you should watch out of all of the MCU films. This is the cream of the crop. So, um, she asked me to kind of give my thoughts on it. And I will say, first of all, I think all of them are essential. I think all 21, 22, when Endgame comes out, um, are essential films. You should watch all of them. But if you do not have the time, if you cannot watch them, um, they put this list together. And this list consists of the first Iron Man and the first Captain America movie, the first Avengers film, Age of Ultron, Civil War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and Infinity War. I look at that, oh wait, no, it was eight, so it was also uh, Captain Marvel. Yeah, so I look at that, and I think that that list is pretty good. I 
I would say it's pretty good. It's a pretty good list. I can't argue with any of those. If I had to swap any of them out for another film, I almost think that I would swap out Captain Marvel for the first Guardians of the Galaxy. If for no other reason than it being our first true introduction to Thanos, our first true int introduction to the real like Marvel Cosmic, um, that film also gives us the first real background on the Infinity Stones. Um, it's just, it's one of those films that you really need to watch to kind of get everything together. So, other than that, I think all the films that they listed are great. They make sense. Um, like I said, the only one that I would probably swap out is Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel is, like I said, a, fan, a fantastic film. It is a great watch, and uh, I had a lot of fun with it. But if I had to swap one film out, it would be Captain Marvel for the first Guardians of the Galaxy, because I think that movie is essential else than how different it was just as much as it is important for a narrative reason but um speaking of those films and narrative and all of that i wanted to kind of contribute something i don't know if you know about this but for those of you who are fans of youtube who um are on youtube all the time like i am there is a channel called nando v movies and nando v movies does a lot of um kind of rewrites of popular films how one change could drastically make a film better and all of this stuff he is fantastic matt over there is a fantastic uh, video essayer. He has a fantastic eye for screenwriting. And he put this thing together called One Marvelous Scene, where he got together a group of YouTubers to all, to each release on the same day, their favorite scene in the entire MCU. A scene that, whether it was emotionally jarring, whether it was narratively special, or if it was something that really just touched them and spoke to them. Um, they each release their scene, and I I kind of wanted to be a part of that. I know I'm not on YouTube. Um, I know this is a podcast format; it's a completely different vehicle. But I really want. It got me thinking after watching the full playlist, which is great. Go on YouTube, look up one marvelous scene, watch the playlist. They're all fantastic. They're all made by fantastic creators, and they are all great scenes and great uh analysis of each scene as well but i wanted to kind of include um include one myself i wanted to be part of it and so i am going to include uh this into this episode so my one marvelous scene takes place in winter soldier captain america the winter soldier and it is something that i call steve's walkabout there is a moment, a brief period in the uh, in the film before everything kicks off, before everything kind of uh, goes off the rails, where you get to kind of follow Steve during his day. Um, you see him walking through the kind of Captain America exhibit in the Smithsonian, uh, where he's you know you go in there and I would be oh my god if I got to walk through an exhibit as it's set up in this film i would die uh but it's got clips 
Um, it's got some of the old propaganda videos. It's got voiceovers talking about all of his contributions, his story in World War II. Uh, it has replicas of the costumes of not just him, but also his Howling Commandos. There's an entire piece of the exhibit dedicated to Bucky Barnes, which does play into the post credit scene. Um, and it is beautifully sad. Because he is so... This is really the moment where he feels like someone who is a man out of time. Where he is, in this modern day, um, at this point he's been able to really kind of get a handle on what's going on. When the Avengers happened, I don't know how long he had really been out of the ice before all that stuff went down. But at this point, at the point of Winter Soldier, he's been out of the ice for two years. And he's been in modern day for two years. And he is just coping with that. And the only real comfort he seems to find in is going back to this exhibit that gives him a sense of what was. And a lot of what touches Steve's character, a lot of what I think is the most endearing piece of Steve is this uh, underlying sadness in him. Because as uh, Peggy Carter says in the other, you know, the second half of the scene, um he never got to live his life everyone else who he fought with in the war almost everyone else who he fought with in the war got to live their own lives after the war and he never got to and now he's looking at a world that is not only so different from the world that he left behind but it is also seemingly uh he doesn't know where his place is in it and i think that's incredibly sad but no more sad than the other half of the scene when he goes to see peggy who is um gotta be like 90 at this point in the film um or at this point in the mcu history uh he's visiting her you can tell he's visited her a couple a few times and she is in hospice care he's talking to her about how he feels like he doesn't know where he is he doesn't know how to cope he doesn't know who to trust and he's having doubts and it's this really nice scene because he never gets on that level with anyone with anyone anytime he's around uh other members of the mcu and there's adversity going on he always puts on a brave face and he goes and he does what needs to be done but with peggy with peggy it's different he knows peggy peggy knows him and so he's able to be open and vulnerable with her about him not knowing who to trust not knowing um, exactly where he fits in the world and then uh, Peggy has a coughing fit because she's old and Steve goes to get her a glass of water and this oh I'm going to try not to get uh, teary eyed when I'm talking about this but um, Peggy looks back at him and it's like she's seeing him for the first time she says Steve um, she starts crying saying that he's come back and the amazing face acting that Chris Evans does in this scene breaks my heart every single time I watch it because this is something that he knows he has to deal with this is something that he's probably dealt with before on his visits with Peggy and um he just oh man his lip trembles his eyes just show this tragic um knowing that this is all the conversations they're ever going to have and um he's he just rolls with it 
He doesn't try to correct her. He doesn't say, we've been here this whole time. He just rolls with it, and he says, well, I couldn't leave my best girl, not when she owes me a dance. And it, whoo, whoo, okay, okay, all right. Whew, okay, I'm good. Um, it is so tragic. It is so beautifully sad because this is exactly the heart of the Steve Rogers story, especially in the MCU. It is this man out of time who never got to live the life that everyone else that he fought with did. Everyone else post-World War II that he got to fight with, that he got to fight with, uh, excuse me, got to reap the benefits of winning the war, and Steve never did. Steve was put into ice, he woke up years later, the world had changed and become darker for that change. And um, this is the last real piece, at least up to this point, of the world that he left behind. It's Peggy and then later on with Bucky. And um, scenes like this really recontextualize and really kind of give you an idea of why Steve would kind of throw away the Avengers for Bucky in Civil War. Because these are the last pieces of his life, of the life that he had before Captain America. And so um, it's just, it is a beautiful scene. It is sad. It is moving. And it is why I think it is one marvelous scene. Whoa, but for now, we're going to move past that, all that emotion, and I'm going to do a quick little uh, kind of recap for everybody. Uh, as we know, in Endgame, the uh, Prime Six Avengers, the original six, this might be their last ride, and will be their last ride altogether as one group. And uh, so I kind of wanted to do a quick little uh, catch-up for those of you who either haven't had the time to watch all the films again, or just wanting a quick refresher on the history of each uh, individual Avenger that are going into this. And I'm just going to be doing the original six, so that's uh, Iron Man, Black Widow, uh, Hawkeye, Hulk, Thor, and Captain America. And so let's go ahead and dive into it, starting with the main man himself, Tony Stark. So Tony Stark, uh, his story really starts off um, in the first Iron Man, where after being captured by terrorists in the middle of the Iraq desert, uh, he's able to move past having an arc reactor, uh, basically needing that arc reactor to survive, builds himself a working suit of armor, escapes the terrorists, and goes on to refine this armor as well as his arc reactor tech into a full-on Mark two and later mark three set of iron man armor after defeating his uh not just his father figure but also his business partner obadiah stain uh tony stark reveals to the world that he is iron man following this of course he meets nick fury who tells him about the avengers initiative and moves on to the stark expo um after really kind of I guess, failing out of or flunking out of the Avengers initiative, uh, Tony bounces back with this year-long expo that's supposed to be just showcasing all of the world's uh, brightest minds. And this includes, unfortunately, a business rival known as Justin Hammer. Um, the two really are uh, mirror images of each other. Justin Hammer is Tony Stark. If he was less successful... Uh, less attractive and overall just a worse person 
and that is reflected when Tony Stark is flipped upside when Tony Stark's world is flipped upside down by uh, the arrival of Whiplash, who has a vendetta against his father. Um, Justin Hammer and Whiplash work together to uh, basically destroy everything Tony has built, which is kind of you know fairly easy considering that Tony is not only struggling with alcoholism but also dealing with the fact that the arc reactor that he created is slowly killing him. He enlists the help of Rhodey, James Rhodes, who dons another version of Iron Man's armor and redubs himself War Machine, and the two are able to defeat Whiplash and get Justin Hammer arrested. Following this, the Battle of New York happens, where Tony Stark is once again enlisted in the Avengers Initiative to battle Loki and the Shatari, who are invading New York. Um, he teams up with Captain America, the shining symbol that has always been hanging over his head because of his father all of his life. And they put aside their differences and are able to defeat Loki as well as destroy much of the Shatari fleet thanks to Tony basically riding a nuke up into space. Uh, following this, we find that the experience has left him with... Uh, really really bad ptsd he can't sleep he's having panic attacks just based on this uh new fact that the world and the universe is so much bigger than he thought going into space really shook him and not knowing if he was going to survive shook him even further so this kind of all comes crashing down on him when uh the mandarin attacks him soon after this uh through a bunch of trials and tribulations, Tony is able to find out that the Mandarin is in fact an actor named Trevor Slattery, and that it is this whole Mandarin facade has been orchestrated by Aldrich Killian, who is a guy who Steve pissed, or not Steve, Tony pissed off at a uh, much earlier date. And following this, uh, he's able to defeat. Aldrich Killian with the help of Pepper, and Tony blows up all of his Iron Man suits, basically shutting out the idea that the suits are Iron Man, and Tony is in fact Iron Man. After this, uh, he is brought back into, out of his uh, semi-retirement, to uh, fight Hydra. They have come into possession of Loki's scepter, and with the Avengers, he's able to reclaim the scepter. However, during this, uh, he is shown a vision by uh, the Scarlet Witch of all of his friends dying. And so he goes, he kind of kicks into overdrive, wanting to build all of these drones to help them out and help make the world a better place. Unfortunately, the scepter, which includes the Mind Stone, ends up corrupting some of the AI and turns it into Ultron. Ultron ends up just being real, real bad and causes a lot of friction between the Avengers team until uh, Tony and the other Avengers are able to finally defeat Ultron, but not before Ultron drops uh, or raises Sokovia, which is a foreign country, out of the ground and pretty much destroys most of it, killing a whole lot of people. After this, uh, Tony is enlisted to help uh, basically set up the Sokovia Accords, which would require all the Avengers to register and um, be essentially property of the United States government. When Steve rebels, Tony enlists the help of 
sympathetic uh, heroes as well as a local hero named Spider-Man to battle Steve. And of course, that's exactly what happens at a foreign airport where we get our the most famous superhero battle in the MCU. Uh, Steve and his uh, compatriot, the Winter Soldier, escape to the Arctic and Tony pursues them having uh, kind of detained the rest of his former friends, and he rendezvous with them at this secret Hydra facility. It's here that Tony finds out that the Winter Soldier killed his parents way back when the Winter Soldier was still being uh, used by Hydra to knock off uh, political opponents and everything else. So Tony fights both of them. Uh, Steve is able to, able to overpower him and leaves with uh, Bucky, leaving behind his shield. After this, Tony settles kind of into a mentor uh, position with Peter Parker, who was Spider-Man, and helps him kind of get a handle on being a hero. And he doesn't get a whole lot of time to do this, uh, because shortly after his proposal to Pepper Potts, them finally getting ready to tie the knot, uh, Doctor Strange shows up in the park one day as they're on their normal walk and tells him that Thanos is coming. Uh, Bruce Banner, the uh, Hulk, had dropped directly into Doctor Strange's uh, Sanctum Sanctorum and told him as much. And now Tony, who has been basically preparing for this fight for over eight years, is now ready to attack this head-on. Uh, he heads into space with both Doctor Strange and Peter and ends up, after uh, defeating... Ebony Maw clashing with Thanos on his original homeworld of Titan. Thanos is able to overpower everybody, gets the time stone from Doctor Strange, and disappears. Pretty soon after this, oh man, Spider-Man as, as well as pretty much everyone else on that team except for Nebula gets dusted, and Tony is left alone on Titan with Nebula and nothing else. So that kind of brings us up to speed on Endgame for Tony. I know that got a little long in the tooth, so I just had to establish all of that so that the rest of these are going to go a little bit quicker. So Natasha Romanoff is up next. Natasha Romanoff was raised through the Red Room as part of the Black Widow program. Uh, she was a killer in the uh, Russian government until she ran across Hawkeye and S.H.I.E.L.D. Hawkeye was able to help her shake her programming and brought her back into S.H.I.E.L.D. and they were a team for a while. At some point she was brought in to be an undercover agent as Tony Stark's uh, secretary during the events of Iron Man 2 and she was able to not only uh, help Tony through his struggles during that film but also able to kind of assess on whether Tony would be a good fit for the Avengers Initiative. Following this, she is sent to a foreign country to retrieve Bruce Banner, who has been in hiding and helping out a local village. After the two come back, she's part of the Battle of New York, uh, where she is instrumental in closing the portal and getting the Shatari invasion to end. After this, she is witness to the collapse of S.H.I.E.L.D. during the events of Captain America the Winter Soldier and fights alongside Cap and Falcon to bring down Hydra after finding out that Hydra has basically infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. and S.H.I.E.L.D. is Hydra. After this, she kind of becomes romantically entangled with Bruce Banner during the, 
events of Age of Ultron. Uh, she is, again, critical to the uh, eventual success of the team where she is able to bring the Hulk back out to fight Ultron. Unfortunately, because of this, uh, the Hulk deciding that he is too much of a... Uh, a risk to the people around him leaves and leaves a heartbroken Natasha behind. Following this, Natasha kind of refocuses herself with the new Avengers and is witness to the destruction that happens in Lagos when um, Crossbones, who they had run across during the Winter Soldier, uh, basically does a suicide bombing and kills a bunch of people with the unfortunate assist of Scarlet Witch, who was trying to get him away from the bystanders and the market. Uh, she sides with Tony initially, but ends up double-crossing him for Steve, and following the dissolution of the Avengers, she goes into hiding with Steve and Falcon. Um, after this, uh, not a whole lot happens uh, until Infinity War, where she comes out of hiding with Steve and Falcon, and ends up at the Battle of Wakanda, where she battles with the rest of the Earthbound Avengers against the forces of the Outriders and Thanos. And she is, of course, witness to the snap when Thanos wipes out half of the universe. Next up, we have Clint Barton, Hawkeye. Uh, Clint Barton was a family man who also worked with S.H.I.E.L.D. until he came across a KGB... Uh, Allegiant Natasha Romanoff, of course, like I said, bringing her back into S.H.I.E.L.D. and the two work together, specifically in Budapest for a mission that we definitely deserve to see in the Black Widow movie. Um, he is then enlisted on a basically security detail for a hammer out in New Mexico and is one of the first people to come into contact with Thor Odinson in his attempts to retrieve his hammer. Uh, following this, he is put in basically a security position watching over the Tesseract while S.H.I.E.L.D. is putting, uh, putting it through its paces. And he is there when Loki comes through the portal that the Tesseract creates and is unfortunately uh, brainwashed and turned to Loki's side for most of the events of the, of the film. Though, of course, he is able to be knocked out of it by Natasha just in time for the Battle of New York. And he is part of the Avengers during that battle. Following this, uh, Hawkeye really doesn't do a whole lot. Um, he kind of sticks with his family, though in secret, and because of the nature of his job, the nature of his missions, his family's moved to a secure location on a farm out in the middle of frickin' nowhere. And uh, he is called upon again when the Avengers reunite to take down Hydra and get Loki's scepter. Following the events of Ultron gaining sentience and attacking the Avengers, he decides to break his his silence and expose his secret when he brings them all to his family farm. Following this, he is uh, one of the Avengers that is involved during the Battle of Sokovia, where he is pretty prominent, and he enlists the help of Wanda and really inspires Wanda to become an Avenger. Uh, he is also the reason that Wanda's brother Quicksilver is killed when he is trying to uh, save a little boy from Ultron firing at him in a Quinjet. 
this weighs really heavy on him and he kind of goes into retirement following this mission but is brought out of retirement by cap when civil war happens uh, he is sent to the Avengers facility to retrieve Wanda and is part of the airport battle and unfortunately detained following the conclusion of it. Post-Civil War, all we know is that he has been under house arrest with his family and that is pretty much what brings him up to speed up to Endgame, though we can assume that something happened to bring him back into the field here. Next up we have Bruce Banner, and Bruce Banner is going to have the shortest... I think of all of them, he's also going to have a huge caveat. Because of course the first film that Hulk Bruce Banner in the MCU was featured in was not Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner. Uh, it was Edward Norton's Bruce Banner, and all I will say about it, because it is still canon, it still happened even though it's a different face, um, basically <laughs> I have this in my notes as Bruce Banner is a Harlem Globetrotter. And if you watch the film, you know that that makes sense. As dumb as that is, you know that makes sense because the film involves him globetrotting all over the world trying to find a secret to basically cure himself and uh, ends up in a battle against Abomination destroying Harlem. So he is a Harlem globetrotter. You heard it here first. Uh, following this, uh, Bruce is enlisted, of course, by S.H.I.E.L.D. to participate in tracking down uh, the Tesseract and Loki and is... I think the most famous for two scenes in this original Battle of New York, one being um, when Cap is giving everyone direction, he tells Hulk, smash. And then again, when he uh, confronts Loki in uh, what at this point is Stark Tower and just wrecks him, just absolutely wrecks him. It's still one of the most satisfying things about that entire franchise. And he uh, utters the famous phrase, puny God. Following this, um, he really isn't enlisted. Uh, we don't really see him again. Uh, we do get a brief look at him uh, during Iron Man 3, where Tony is kind of recounting all the events that happened in that film. And uh, Bruce has fallen asleep through at least halfway through. And uh, he lets Steve know, or he lets Tony know that he's not really that kind of doctor. He's not a therapist. So that's really all we see of him until the events of Age of Ultron, where he is once again brought back together during the Avengers reunion to take down Hydra. During the events of this film, at a certain point he is uh, manipulated by uh, the Scarlet Witch to attack a nearby town, and ends up fighting against Tony in his Hulkbuster armor, and uh, causes havoc. Really just wreaks havoc on this town. And uh, following this, during the... Uh, events of this film again he kind of enters into a romantic relationship with natasha both of them kind of uh finding solace in each other at the idea that they're both monsters and i'm not saying that natasha's reason for thinking she's a monster is right um but that's how it is presented narratively uh natasha decides that them being together is less important than saving the world so she brings the hulk back out of bruce and following the events of the battle of sokovia bruce escapes leaving a heartbroken natasha behind the hulk however while flying away on the quinjet is somehow sucked through an interdimensional portal and winds up on sakar where he ends up fighting his way through the ranks of the gladiatorial arena there and becomes its champion basically staying as hulk and not letting bruce banner out for two years 
Unfortunately, this nice uh, kind of life that he settled to is shaken up when Thor arrives on Sakaar and nearly dethrones him as champion of the arena. He helps Thor essentially overthrow the Grandmaster with the help of Valkyrie, and the three, accompanied by Loki, head back to Asgard, where they battle with Hela and all of her hordes. Uh, Hulk is there, he fights... <laughs> He fights Fenrir and then tries to fight Surtur after he is revived, but is called back to the ship as Asgard is destroyed and is present on the ship when the uh, remaining Asgardians begin to head towards Earth. However, they never make it to Earth because Thanos attacks the ship, um, killing half of the Asgardians that are on board while assuming uh, Valkyrie... Hopefully Korg and uh, Meek and some of the other Asgardians escape. Uh, Hulk is enlisted to fight Thanos and gets a little bit of one-on-one combat with him before Thanos just kicks the shit out of him. Heimdall then sends him to Earth to give Doctor Strange and everyone else the warning that Thanos is coming. And he is present for the Battle of Wakanda where Hulk does not come out. Bruce Banner is Bruce Banner again, and he uses the Hulkbuster armor to participate in the battle, and he is there when the snapping happens. Moving on over to Thor Odinson, the mightiest Avenger. Um, Thor Odinson was son of Odin along with Loki, uh, and, you know, lived just as part of this nuclear family for thousands and thousands of years. Um until he is forced into exile after disobeying the direct orders of his father, the king of Asgard, and sent to Earth, specifically Mexico, without his hammer, basically telling him that he needs to become worthy again to wield his hammer. After meeting Jane Foster and her uh, scientific cohorts, uh, Thor is able to regain his worthiness and defeats not only a suit of armor called the destroyer that is sent to destroy but also uh throw a wrench in the plans of loki who is trying to seize power in asgard following this he heads back to earth and reunites with loki after having believed that he was dead and he is part of the coolest little one-on-one of phase one i think which is uh his battle with hulk in the helicarrier The two were able to make up just in time for the Battle of New York, though one of my favorite parts of the Battle of New York is after they take down one of the giant uh, serpent things directly into Grand Central Station. They pause for a second, and Hulk just punches him out of frame. Um, Following this, Thor takes an imprisoned Loki as well as the Tesseract back to Asgard, but unfortunately all is not well from there. Malekith the Accursed returns to Asgard in search of the Aether, which as we would know uh, becomes the Reality Stone, and during this seemingly kills Loki as well as his mother, uh, Freya. Thor is completely shaken up by this and promises to defend the realms uh, for or basically in Loki's honor, not knowing that Loki is still alive and has not only imprisoned Odin, but is now posing as him as the ruler of Asgard. Uh, Following this, on one of his many uh, trips back to Earth, Thor is enlisted for the Avengers reunion to take down um, 
Hydra and retrieve Loki's scepter and is present at the birth of not just Ultron but also Vision who lifts his hammer and is therefore worthy. He's also present at the Battle of Sokovia and is the person who destroys the basically the meteor that Sokovia has been turned into allowing millions of lives to be saved while hundreds of thousands are still lost. Uh, after this he basically tells everyone I've had a vision, i got to go seek out these Infinity Stones, and goes off into space for a few years. Next time we see him, he is captured by Surtur in Muspelheim, or Muspelheim, however you want to pronounce it. And he is uh, basically on the hunt for the Infinity Stones, doesn't find any, but he heads back to Asgard after finding out that Loki has been posing as Odin this whole time. Using the help of Doctor Strange, uh, Thor and Loki are able to locate Odin and just in time for Odin to tell them, hey, I'm dying, you had a sister, I've imprisoned her, but me dying means she's going to come back, she's bad. So Odin dies, Hela comes back, their sister, their older sister, and Hela absolutely wrecks both of them and sends both of them to Sakaar unknowingly. Uh, Thor is able to fight his way after getting a sweet haircut and fights his way through the uh, basically through the hierarchy of Sakaar and nearly uh, abandons Loki in Sakaar before heading back to Asgard with Valkyrie and Hulk in tow to liberate his people. Uh, he gets the idea to use Surtur to destroy Asgard, which is the source of Hela's power, and escapes with all of the remaining Asgardians, as well as Valkyrie, Korg, uh, Heimdall, Meek, the whole cast, and Loki, on a ship headed towards Earth. Unfortunately, as we said, the uh, ship never makes it to Earth. Thanos comes in, wrecks everybody, nearly kills Thor, definitely kills Loki. I know people who love Loki want to say that he survived, that he's posing as Bruce, or whatever other crazy theories they come up with. Loki's dead. He's dead. Um, but uh, Thor survives, is found by the Guardians of the Galaxy, and heads to Nidavellir to craft a Thanos-killing weapon along with Rocket Raccoon and Groot, and along with the dwarf Ghibli? That's not his name. I don't know what his name is. Uh, played by Peter Dinklage, we'll say that. Uh, is able to craft Stormbreaker, an axe using the arm of Groot as the handle, and returns just in time to turn the tide of the Battle of Wakanda, fully empowered once again. He is able to turn back the tides of not just the Outriders, as but also the Black Order, which are kind of uh, Thanos' Imperial Guard, and goes not for the head when Thanos arrives, instead chucking his axe straight into Thanos' chest, and is just as much to blame for the snapping as Peter Quill. You can argue this all the live long day, but Thanos was right, Thor should have gone for the head, but he wanted to see Thanos suffer before he killed him. And in his arrogance, in this belief that fate willed him to kill Thanos, he unfortunately gives Thanos the time that he needs to snap. And that brings us to the final Avenger, the first Avenger, Captain America Steve Rogers. Steve Rogers was uh, born way, way back in the early 1900s. 
that makes him sound like i don't know that makes him sounds like oh he was on the oregon trail but no he uh participated in world war ii with his buddy bucky after getting the super soldier serum thanks to dr abraham erskine and became the world's one and only super soldier he became the Star-Spangled Man and fought through World War II with his Howling Commandos, unfortunately uh, basically giving his life to stop the schemes of the Red Skull who wanted to fly a giant bomber plane into Washington, D.C. or New York, all of those places. Steve basically flies the uh, thing into the, uh, the Arctic, being lost forever, or so he thought. He wakes up in 2010-2011 and ends up being a integral part of the original Avengers, participating in the Battle of New York and directing everyone and leading the Avengers to victory. Uh, following this, he basically throws himself into working for S.H.I.E.L.D. as, I guess, Captain Asskicker in their uh, ranks doing uh, stealth missions strike missions the whole deal but finds out unfortunately that shield not only uh, has been infiltrated by hydra but basically is hydra so he is uh after enlisting uh natasha romanoff black widow as well as sam wilson falcon a new friend uh he is responsible for bringing down shield as we know it completely destroying it as well as destroying his world finding out that his best friend bucky who he thought died during world war ii is still alive and is being used by hydra as the winter soldier in a final confrontation aboard a uh basically a crashing helicarrier uh the two seemingly come to an understanding where bucky remembers steve's uh friendship as well as their relationship together and bucky's classic line i'm with you to the end of the line uh, after this, Steve is basically hellbent on finding his friend, so he begins traveling the world with Falcon to try and find Bucky. However, that search has to be put on hold uh, when he is brought back together for the Avengers reunion that we've only mentioned once this whole time uh, to take down Hydra and retrieve Loki's staff. He is also part of the birth of Ultron, he is part of the birth of Vision, and uh, is a once again leading the avengers into the battle of sokovia following this with his new avengers roster steve leads the avengers once again alongside black widow until a fateful mission in lagos tracking down crossbones who uses a suicide vest to try and blow up both himself and cap but scarlet witch wills uses her powers willing uh crossbones up into the air unfortunately it's directly into an office building where people die following this uh sokovia cords are announced brought in and uh steve makes a definitive stance against registering so he comes to blows with his longtime friend at this point tony stark and culminates of course in the battle at the airport following this he escapes with bucky having finally found him again and the two head to a secret hydra base in the arctic because according to bucky zemo's master plan is to wake up six super soldiers who are even worse than the winter soldier was however when they arrive there they find that zemo has already killed all of them and 
basically brought them there along with Iron Man to show them the truth. And that is that Iron Man's parents were killed by Bucky during his Winter Soldier days. When Steve is confronted by Tony about this, whether he knew, Cap lies. And then Tony pushes him and he reveals that he did know this whole time. And that results in the two battling. And it is heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking fight. Uh, Steve is able to overpower Tony and escapes with Bucky just barely. Following this, Steve brings Bucky to Wakanda and the care of T'Challa the Black Panther, a new player on the game and also the leader of his country now. And they put Bucky on ice for now so that they can get rid of his programming and hopefully give him a normal life. After this, Steve goes underground with Natasha, Sam, and Wanda and remains so until the events of Infinity War where he comes out of hiding to once again lead. However, this time he's leading leading an army during the Battle of Wakanda. Uh, he is instrumental in the defense of Wakanda against the Outriders and the Black Order, but unfortunately all is for naught because Thanos arrives having collected the other stones and kills Vision, taking the Mind Stone and completing his gauntlet, and the snap. And that is going to bring all of those up to date. The original Avengers, I know this is a little long, but I felt like a good refresher was in order. And um, yeah, that brings us all up to Endgame. So um, speaking of Endgame, just to cap off this uh, main part of the... Uh, of the episode, I wanted to just throw out a couple predictions. A couple predictions that I think could happen. And uh, if I'm right, cool. If I'm not, cool. I am going into the film Thursday night just with the understanding that as much as I could theorize and uh, predict, they are going to throw me some curveballs that I'm not going to see coming. And it's three hours. A lot can happen in three hours. So I'm just going to rapid fire some predictions here. Um, time travel. I think they are going to use the quantum realm to time travel to different points in the MCU's history, and we are going to see them a la like a Back to the Future style. Um, there's going to be a rematch with Thanos. Uh, we've seen this in the trailer where we see uh, the, the MCU Trinity, Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man kind of walking up on a battle-ready Thanos. Uh, this film is also going to be kind of the greatest hits of the MCU, touching back on my first prediction where they're going to be going back to important bits during the MCU's history and whether they influence them or they're just witness to them. Uh, this is going to be one last ride, the last ride for all six Avengers together. Um, I think Thor and Carol, Thor and Carol Danvers, Thor and Captain Marvel are going to really get to strut their stuff and flex their power muscles. I think they're going to be destroying some stuff. Their power is off the charts. They are the arguably the two most powerful Avengers, and I think they're really going to be able to cut loose in this film. Um... I also think that the consequences are going to stick. There are going to be some characters who die who stay dead. There are going to be some events that happen and stay that way. Uh, whether this is the dissolution of the Avengers, whether this is deaths, whether this is getting separated. Um, the There's some consequences that are coming, I think, because we've had a mostly... I'm mostly, and I say that with a big underline, to mostly consequence-free storytelling in the MCU. And I think this is the time that we are going to start to see some of those consequences stick. And speaking of those consequences, here are my 
I guess, my odds on who out of the original six Avengers is going to die from likely or most likely to least likely. I'm going to just rattle them off. Um, Tony Stark. No, I'll do that one last. So Bruce Banner, I think, is likely to die. Uh, Thor, I think, is least likely to die because he's got a career resurgence recently, and I think uh, we still need to see him as a leader and I, of his remaining people, and I really want to see that. Natasha Romanoff, highly likely, highly likely that she's going to die, especially because we know that the Black Widow film is going to be a prequel. Clint Barton, highly likely to die, highly likely to die. Um, his story has really kind of been told, and it would be uh, kind of poetic for him to sacrifice his life to bring back his family, which I think was dusted. Um, God, and this comes to the final two. Uh, Tony Stark, I think, is highly likely to die. Uh, we've really been kind of telling the story of self-sacrifice. He started that during the first Avengers film with the whole argument between him and Cap and him sacrificing himself or th seemingly sacrificing himself. And I think this is going to complete the circle. I think he's going to sacrifice himself to save everyone. And Steve Rogers, also highly likely to die. Um, I think he is... He has just as much uh, going for him to die. He is a self-sacrificer. That is what he does, especially after the whole lesson of we don't sacrifice a lot or we don't trade lives in Infinity War, and that's what costs them the day. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but I am interested to see how that goes. Um, so on a scale of, I'll do this, I'll do least likely, likely, Highly likely, I'll just stick with those three. So at the least likely, I think Thor and maybe Bruce, maybe Bruce, especially because he does have one more film, I think, on his contract. Uh, at just the likely bar, I would put um, Clint Barton and Natasha. And at the highly likely, unfortunately, is going to be Steve Rogers and Tony Stark. I think Steve's surviving. I'm going to say that now. I think Steve Rogers is going to survive. Tony's going to die. I think Steve is going to get set for him to sacrifice himself. But Tony is going to take it for him, telling him to live the life he never got to live. So those are my predictions. That is it for the main meat of this uh, episode. Um, we've still got on the way packed show. This is a long one, uh, packed show. So we've still got our, uh, uh, this week's comics countdown. We've still got our weekly review. We, and we have the conclusion of our MCU rankings, our top five. So stay tuned for all that. But for now...
And of course, that beautiful intro theme means it is now time for this week's weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And our focus so far in the weekly review series has been on the Doom Patrol show, which is on the DC Universe streaming service. This week, we are checking out episode 10 called Hair Patrol. And I know that sounds weird um, if you watch the episode. It makes a lot of sense. If you haven't watched the episode, uh, spoilers abound, as there always are for this week's uh, weekly review. So this episode was weird for me. Um, I, I'm i not going to say it was a bad episode. Far from it. I think this was an incredible episode to dive into Niles Calder's story. Uh, we haven't really gotten a lot of Niles Calder throughout the season, partially I think because Timothy Dalton is probably really friggin' expensive, but also because they're focusing on the actual team. But this episode takes a look back at Niles, kind of his formative uh couple years out in the wilderness where he really decided to take a stand against the what would become the Bureau of Normalcy. So while I will say that this is absolutely not a bad episode whatsoever, I think this is the first time in the season where I will say that this episode was weaker than the episode previous. Uh, pretty much this whole time going through the season, every episode has been able to top itself one after the other. Every episode's been better and better and better. And um, this is the first time where I think the, uh, the quality took a step back. Like I said, not a bad episode whatsoever, but I really think that the previous episode that was Jane Patrol was much stronger than this particular episode. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that this kind of had to... The events in this episode had to kind of run concurrently with the episode previous, which was a much more interesting story, whereas this one, at least the uh, modern day portions of the episode, I don't think were as interesting as last week's episode. However, this really was a Niles Calder story, and it starts way back in 1913, which again, 1913, we are in 2019, that is an over 100 year difference, and Niles Calder looks the exact same. However, we finally get some answers. We'll get into that a little bit later, because now we're going to cut over to New York today, and we are checking in with Ernest Franklin, who is known as... The Beard Hunter. This is the weirdest character that they have had so far. And this, mind you, is a show that has had a genderqueer sentient street, a donkey that that just farts out black holes, and a main cast who you would never, ever in a million years see on billboards like you see the MCU characters. This character, the Beard Hunter, is the most ridiculous and gross character in the entire show so far. Um, it's just, he's unique, I will give him that, and the actor does a phenomenal job in this episode. He is wonderful to watch. But um, just the, the whole having to eat other people's hair to then track them is just the fact that he gets some kind of like sick satisfaction from eating other people's it's just bleh, bleh. it's gross the beard hunter is gross 
Uh, this also had another uh, big look into the Bureau of Normalcy, uh, with both them recruiting the Beard Hunter as well as showing the kind of the inception of the Bureau of Normalcy and how it was originally the Bureau of Oddities, headed by Niles Calder. But when he went missing for those, I believe it was two or three years, uh, the Great War happened, also known as World War One, and the United States government basically decided that oddities were no longer their focus and they wanted to focus on normalcy. So they basically burned the Bureau of Oddities to the ground and upon its ashes built the Bureau of Normalcy. Um, it's weird. It's we, I'm glad that we finally get some backstory for them. We've kind of been getting... Uh, mentions and little pieces of the Bureau of Normalcy kind of littered throughout the season so far, and it looks like they're kind of being set up as like the uh, secondary big bad next to Mr. Nobody. But um, one of the big things for me that I really, really liked was uh, the very first mention of Flex Mentallo. Uh, Flex Mentallo is a weird character. Again, he fits great in this uh, Doom Patrol realm. But uh, Rita Farr recognizes this uh, magazine ad and she was like this you know it looks like the person who was you know the main focus of this ad just walked off the page he was i used to see this ad all the time this you know muscle-bound man and it clearly says flex mentalo i think it's like on the actual page it's like advertising some like cereal like mentalos or something like that it's just it's funny and uh as we said a couple episodes ago, uh, the creators of the show have confirmed that Flex Mentallo will be making an appearance. I'm really excited to see who's playing Flex Mentallo and what they're going to do with him, because he's a fantastic character. Uh, but as I was saying earlier, uh, Niles Calder's secret is finally revealed. We find out that uh, his whole thing with him living so long, everyone else in the house living so long without ever aging or changing may have something to do with the uh, Wendigo-style character that uh, he meets in the mountains. This um, kind of cave woman who's, who's super hairy but has lived through generations of her... Tr- of what used to be her tribe and every generation she is there and she is unchanged she hasn't aged so we can kind of surmise especially since they enter into a uh, a romantic and sexual relationship that niles may have figured out her secret whether that was through um them mating in a way or whether that was through her having some kind of serum or something that he acquired uh, I'm still waiting for an official confirmation on this in the show, but I'm really, really uh, glad that we're finally starting to make some headway into answering that question. Uh, this episode also for the um, modern day segments really heavily featured Vic and Rita. I love their characters. I really, really do. And I love the fact that they don't really fit together, but a lot of the scenes that we've had with them they just they bounce off each other really well i really like their chemistry i just wish that they had more to do because most of this episode is just interacting with the beard hunter being grossed out by him and then not a whole lot so hopefully now that all of the uh, stories have converged 
into uh you know one again we're going to start to get more uh growth and more narrative development with all of them together uh we also finally caught back up with mr nobody he has returned since kind of taking a back seat for the last few episodes like at least i want to say like the last three or four um and he it just goes to show he is still there alan tudyk is still fantastic and he is still running the game so i'm really interested to see what his end game is it seems like he is searching for that girl who might have given niles the secret to immortality so i'm really interested to see how she fits into his plans if she's still out there because we know that niles kind of left her so that the bureau of normalcy wouldn't find her but i'm just i'm really curious on how they're going to fit all these puzzle pieces together and then the ending the ending was ridiculous the ending involves uh the beard hunter who had consumed uh, some of all uh, uh niles's drain scum mm. um tracking down niles potentially tracking down Niles somewhere and finding him in this dark corridor. And it is creepy as hell. It is weird. He's wearing some kind of mask. I don't even know if that's the real Niles. But um, Beard Hunter turns around and that giant like wolf elk thing presumably kills the Beard Hunter. So I believe that that is the last we're going to see of the Beard Hunter. For me, c'est la vie. Goodbye. It was not nice knowing you. But, um, yeah, so overall, like I said, this episode was weird. I feel like it was kind of a sidestep in quality. Um, like I said, not a bad episode. The series is still super, super strong. But I am ready to jump into the next phase of this season. Um, I'm starting to get the feeling, like, even as we're... Especially now that we're getting into the last few episodes here, I'm not sure exactly how long the season is supposed to be for doom patrol um let me look it up here if anyone knows because i'm i believe titans was just like 10 episodes but doom patrol may be longer but even if it is we're at episode 10 and we still don't really know exactly what's going to uh happen with mr nobody if it's going to get resolved by the end of the season or if you know we're gonna get some big cliffhanger just like uh with titans so i'm looking at it right now um it looks like it's gonna be 13 episodes right now so i am really curious how we how episodes 11 12 and 13 are gonna kind of bring everything together uh really all we know is that next episode is called francis patrol so we will see we will see i'm excited um again i've been loving this series so far if you haven't jumped on tell me why i recognize that not everybody wants to pay for the service for dc universe but again i'm pretty sure they do like a week long trial period you can binge the entire show might as well binge uh, Young Justice Outsiders as well and if you want to Titans um, and then just by the end of the week cancel your uh, 
subscription and there you go you've watched the show you need to watch the show this is fantastic and i think it, you're really gonna like it if you finally dive in if you have been watching the show let me know if you've been loving it let me know if you've been weirded out if you hate it i want to know what your thoughts are on this show um feel free to of course uh reach out to me on that on instagram or twitter or through email and uh yeah that's gonna wrap it up for this week's weekly review i'm interested to see what francis patrol ends up being next week and of course uh next week will be our review of that but for now let's jump on over to this week's comics countdown Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I am picking up this week and the comics that I think you should be picking up too, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or, or however you get your comics. Uh, we'll be going over the title of, the, of each comic, the creative team, as well as a brief synopsis of each, and of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by a synopsis voice. If you have a synopsis voice that you would like to recommend or you think I should try out, feel free to let me know on Instagram, Twitter, or through email. And uh, this week we've got one, two, three, four, five, six books. Six books that I think you should definitely be checking out, and they are a doozy for sure this is a great great week for comic book fans uh with gotham uh finishing up with endgame and with the comics like it's a great great week to be a comic book fan so uh let's go ahead and jump into it we're gonna start off with fantastic four number nine written by dan slot with art by aaron cuter one of my favorite artists uh, this is continuing on really what's been going on with uh, Dr. Doom and the Fantastic Four. Uh, Dr. Doom has seemingly defeated and captured Galactus and is now using him as a power source. And the Fantastic Four are going to try to stop him, basically. So let's jump into the synopsis here. What price victory? One cruel act will forever change the relationship between the Fantastic Four and Victor Von Doom. The fate of Latveria and of the world, and the balance of cosmic power in the universe, all rests on one decision. All will be revealed in the terrifying final chapter of Herald of Doom. So yeah, um, that's an ominous final uh, sentence in that uh, in that synopsis. But I'm excited. I've been enjoying it so far. Um, Dan Slott, as you know, polarizing as he is as a comic writer, has been doing real good work with Fantastic Four, and uh, can't argue with Aaron Cuter art. So this is definitely a pickup. Next up, we have Avengers number eighteen. Big week for the Avengers. Uh, Written by Jason Aaron with art by Ed McGinnis. This is going to be an interesting one. This is going to be an interesting one. I'm, uh, I'm going to give you the synopsis and then I'll tell you exactly why I think it's interesting. War of the Realms tie-in. See the greatest heroes of Washington, D.C. in action as the War of the Realms comes to the nation's capital. Who needs the Avengers when you've got the all-new Squadron Supreme of America? But who are these mysterious new heroes, and where did they come from? Only Agent Coulson knows. 
So for those of you who don't know, the Squadron Supreme is basically a total blatant ripoff of the Justice League by uh, Marvel Comics. They have Hyperion, who is your uh, your Superman. Um, they have a bunch of other characters that are specifically uh, modeled off of Batman, Wonder Woman, uh, The Flash. So... With all of the War of the Realm stuff going on, it's going to be interesting seeing uh, these characters kind of in interjecting themselves into the conflict, and it's going to be interesting to see where their stock ends up being post-War of the Realm, so definitely pick this up. Next up, we have Superior Spider-Man number 5, written by Christos Gage, with art by Mike Hawthorne. Uh, this is going to be a really interesting episode. Uh, really really interesting issue uh the cover brings back the classic superior spider-man costume that i'm such a big fan of um and yeah the synopsis also teases a really interesting uh team up so let's jump into the synopsis after the cosmic threat of Terax, Otto Octavius, the superior Spider-Man, is ready for the usual Spider-Man fare of street-level villains, so he's none too pleased when a major magic threat rears its ugly head and he's forced to, oh, ask for help from guest star Doctor Strange. But will Strange help Otto or take him down? So yeah, uh, Otto Octavius and Doctor Strange. That's not normally a team-up that we see, so I'm excited to see what they do with it. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1002, written by Pete, Pete Tomasi, with art by Brad Walker. This has been great. The last issue that kind of showed the debut of uh, the Arkham Knight ended with the Arkham Knight with his foot on Batman's chest, arrows littered all over Batman's body, so I'm interested to see what happens here. Let's jump into the synopsis. Batman's first battle with the Arkham Knight was as brutal as they come, but things are about to get worse, as one of his most important allies jumps into the fray and ends up in far over their head. So that could be a few different people. Batman has many allies, even though he uh, likes to see himself as a brooding loner. So I'm interested to see exactly what happens here. We're we're gonna. I I believe strongly that this story is gonna be one for the ages, and it's gonna just keep ramping up more and more and more and more until we get the big reveal of who the Arkham Knight is. I don't know why. I'm going to put this out there uh, as a weird thing. I don't have this in my notes, but I'm just going to put it out there. I think the Arkham Knight is a woman. I don't know why. I don't know what, I don't know what gives me that, uh, that idea, but something about it, I don't know why, uh, leads me to believe that the Arkham Knight is a woman. We will see. I'm going to put that prediction down now, and uh, when the reveal actually happens, we'll find out if I'm uh, right or not. But next up, we have Thanos number one of six, written by Teeny Howard, with art by Ariel Olivetti. Uh, this is an interesting one. This is, um, I think, going to, I mean, of course, it's great for uh, timing purposes, seeing as how uh, Endgame is this week, and it's, it's Thanos. Thanos is a major player in that, and this looks like it's going to be kind of a... Uh, a look into the past, kind of a prequel limited series, kind of detailing the relationship between Gamora and Thanos. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Thanos is dead. Executed by the deadliest assassin in the galaxy, his daughter, Gamora. 
But before their relationship came to a bloody end, how did it begin? Find out in this all-new miniseries by Tina Howard and Ariel Olivetti. Parental Advisory. So yeah, uh, I'm interested. I Wow, I, I couldn't get out of that accent for a second. Um, I'm really interested in the story. Uh, the relationship between Gamora and Thanos is so fascinating, especially with everything that happened in Infinity Wars, uh, the comics event that happened this past year. So I'm interested to see if they shine any new lights or anything like that onto the relationship and if we find out anything uh, that we didn't know before. But the big comic this week, the big number one must-pick-up, have-to-pick-up comic this week is Heroes in Crisis number eight of nine. Um, this is written by Tom King with art by Clayman and Mitch Jarrods. Um, this is it. This is being uh, kind of hyped up as the full reveal of who murdered everyone at Sanctuary, why they did it, and uh, where they go from here. So I am so stoked. I'm really, really excited to see what happens, and um, I'm also really nervous, especially with that beautiful cover that Mitch Jarrods put out uh, with Wally and his family among just bloodied uh, Sanctuary robes. It's beautiful, and it's haunting, and it's... Um, I'm not sure. I'm really... Let's jump into the synopsis. You've seen all the clues. You heard the testimony and eavesdropped on the secret confessions of the world's greatest superheroes. Now, with the killer revealed, it's time to find out why. What could have driven a hero to the brink to turn a savior into a murderer? Rifts will form between old allies, and the trinity of Wonder Woman, Superman, and Batman will have their leadership challenged and will question their own judgment. Sanctuary has become something they never imagined, and it's still potentially carrying on without them. Ooh, that is ominous. So I'm really excited. Um, I might end up, when this is all done and wrapped up doing a full review and retrospective on heroes in crisis just as a story but um yeah this is heavy stuff and um during the panel that uh tom king put on during wondercon which i luckily got to sit in on he uh he teased that the opening lines of uh this issue of this issue specifically are my name is Wally West, the fastest man alive, and this is my confession. So it's oh, it's teasing, and it's been teasing this whole series that Wally West is the killer. I don't want him to be the killer. If he ends up being the killer, and they explain why in a way that I will accept, I will accept that. But I am not looking forward to this. So, um... Yeah, that's going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Fantastic Four number 9, Avengers number 18, Superior Spider-Man number 5, Detective Comics number 1002, Thanos number 1 of 6, and Heroes in Crisis number 8 of 9. Big week for comics. If there's a comic you think I missed or a comic that you think I should be checking out that I'm not currently reading, again, feel free to let me know. Uh, I would love to have that conversation with you. I always love discovering new comics. So, yeah. Uh, but for now, we are heading into the, the 
ultimate conclusion as it pertains to our official MCU rankings. Our top five MCU movies ever of all time. So let's go ahead and dive in to the top five films of the MCU. Whatever it takes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time. The top five MCU films of all time. Uh, This episode is going to be a long one, I can already tell. So um, we've been counting them down, 21 all the way down to number one. And this week, on the eve of Avengers Endgame, we are looking at the top five MCU films of all time. So... To recap our list so far, I got my notes right here. At number 21, all the way back there, <laughs> uh, we had Thor The Dark World. Number 20 was Incredible Hulk. Number 19 was Iron Man 2. Number 18 was Iron Man 3. Number 17 was Thor. Number 16 is Doctor Strange. Number 15 is Ant Man and the Wasp. Number 14 is Avengers Age of Ultron. Number 13 is Captain America, the first Avenger. Number 12 is Captain Marvel. Number 11 is Iron Man. Number 10 is Ant-Man. Number 9 is Black Panther. Number 8 is Spider-Man Homecoming. Number 7 is Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Number 6 is Guardians of the Galaxy 1. And that brings us all the way to number 5, which is Avengers Assemble. Also known as Marvel's The Avengers, also known as The Avengers. Um, this was tough. The uh, The top five was probably the group that moved around the most for me. Um, I can honestly say that I probably went through three or four different drafts of the top five before finally settling on this one, and it was, it was a tough, it was a tough pick. Um, but number five is Avengers Assemble, and Avengers, I would say, is is arguably the most rewatchable film in the entire MCU. I would say that it's tied for the most rewatchable with one other movie, which we will get into. But what I love about this movie is that it is perfect ensemble storytelling. Every character of the main Avengers cast is highlighted, all of them you care about, all of them you want to succeed, and it really, for me at least, it really was an event. I talk about in this episode how uh, how the premiere itself was an event that I remember, and really watching this film for the first time, and every time I've watched it since, has really been an event, because people forget that this was no way, in no way was this supposed to happen. Um, with the interconnectivity that the MCU has nowadays, uh, it's commonplace. You see, you know, Doctor Strange pop up in Thor. You see um, Captain America pop all over the place. But um, back then, back in 2012, um, this didn't happen. 
this wasn't something that happened on the regular. And so when this happened, it was just incredible. Um, it was something that you don't really get the feeling for nowadays. I think the only thing that's comparative to this is the hype for Endgame because the hype behind the first Avengers movie was off the charts, just off the charts. Um, and I think that it's really held up by its cast. Um, everyone gets a moment to shine. Uh, what Joss Whedon does really well is ensemble storytelling. But as I've talked about in previous uh episodes when talking about the countdown there are a couple uh negatives to this um a lot of people myself included kind of feel like when joss whedon handles uh certain characters he's really great and when he handles certain characters it ends up not being so great um the way that he handles tony stark in the first avengers is i think uh problematic because it makes him less of a team player and really turns him almost into Batman. So he's Bat-Tony, um, where he has an answer for everything and the rest of the Avengers are just kind of, you know, riding his coattails. I think they've really done a great job fixing that in the last few films, the Russo brothers really have. And um, I think that now we look at Tony and it's very different. He still has those elements of he's always trying to come up with a plan, but it's not so far that he is on another level when it comes to the other Avengers. Um, another negative I have is uh, collateral damage. <laughs> uh, back in 2010, 2011, 2012, collateral damage wasn't really something that we thought about um, when it comes to these big superhero battles that happen inside of large populated cities. But in a post-Man of Steel world, uh, we look at collateral damage as something that needs to be addressed and something that needs to be uh, paid attention to. And this is something that I think they really did a great job on in Avengers Age of Ultron, where they really put stock into saving people. Uh, this, you know, the final battle in uh, the Battle of New York was about saving people, but I mean, buildings were falling, people were dying, and it's like they talk about the casualty list in the Civil War, and I, I think at this point, they really didn't have a mind about collateral damage, and it shows. Uh, one of the unique uh, negatives and positives I have is it really boils the characters down to their essentials. Um, Tony's a sarcastic genius. Cap is a, you know, Boy Scout, essentially. Thor is a Shakespearean god. So a lot of these characters, you know their archetypes, you know how they fit into the team, but it doesn't really give them room to be themselves to their full extent. Um, up until probably... I'd say Captain America Civil War, uh, really the only time you really got to see who Cap was as a person were in his solo movies, because in uh, the first Avengers and Age of Ultron, he's really just, oh, I'm the aw shucks language guy, and that's, it's a shame, because there's so many more layers to his character, and everyone is kind of, like I said, boiled down to their essentials, which makes it easier to show, uh, 
contrasting character characteristics uh, between each character in those um, team moments, but it also kind of takes away some of their uh, narrative depth. So both positive and a negative there. But finally, my final point is that Avengers, the very first Avengers, once it was released, once it premiered, became the standard. If your film isn't as good or as fun or as um, or as enjoyable or as much of a thrill ride as the Avengers is, then then that specific MCU movie isn't going to work. And we always look back to this film with rose-colored glasses, and I think deservedly so, because this was the standard. This is the bar where you have to meet if you want to make a good MCU movie. So this is what kind of started it all. This is what really kicked us into high gear, and this is what was the beginning of what we now look at as Endgame. So number four is Thor Ragnarok. Uh, this is the other, this is the uh, tied with Avengers Assemble for the most rewatchable. I think on any given day, this can be the most rewatchable MCU film of all time. And that is because this is this movie is fun. It's just a fun time. It's so good. It's funny. It's charming. It's exciting. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with Chris Hemsworth's Thor. He got a bad deal for most of his appearances in the MCU. Um, the first few movies, especially Thor The Dark World, didn't really do him any favors. And uh, the real thing that a lot of people forget is that in the Avengers, and subsequently in Avengers Age of Ultron, what Joss Whedon got right about Thor is tapping into Chris Hemsworth's comedic sensibilities, because Chris Hemsworth is super funny. He's very, very, very funny. And uh, they brought that into his appearances in the Avengers movies, but they never really capitalized on it until Thor Ragnarok. And Thor Ragnarok really is a almost a reinvention of the Thor character. They really leaned heavily into Chris Hemsworth's sensibilities as an actor, and I think they blended, they blurred the line between Chris Hemsworth and Thor, much like they did with Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr., and really, I think Thor Ragnarok is the first time that the that the character really felt like this is his own. This is his own version of the character before it was like oh this is adaptation of you know the comics character but now this this is something that he can call his own something that he can take ownership of and we see that all the way into infinity war as well how he has just completely taken over the role and i think a lot of factors went into that leading more into comedy um dealing with some of the uh the less hokey uh I guess factors into his character and also giving him a sweet haircut uh, really helped him kind of line up his sensibilities with the character. So Thor has finally, at this point in this film, become Chris Hemsworth's character. A couple negatives just to get them out of the way. Uh, This film does at times feel like it's two films in one, both the Sakaar stuff as well as the stuff with Hela. they feel like they're two separate movies at times, and that feels a little disjointed. And I think that once we leave Sakar, we lose a lot of that fun aspect, and it kind of becomes all business, 
once we start to head back to Asgard, which narratively makes sense, but I think if they wanted to pick a tone, they should have, you know, just picked a tone. Um, and then also, the stuff with Asgard is overall, it's just less interesting, because we get to Sakaar, we see all these bright colors, all of this very Jack Kirby-esque architecture and artwork, and it's just bright, it's fun, it's loud, and then we go back to Asgard, and this isn't, you know, Taika Waititi's fault. Hello, Churchill. That's our cat. He has a lot of feelings about Thor Ragnarok. But, uh, yeah, it's like you you go back to Asgard, and it's not anybody's fault, but it's comparatively to Sakaar, it's just so boring. It's very drab, it's very uh, almost bland. Not just, like, in the storytelling of it, it's the color palette. The color palette in Sakaar is so vibrant, so alive. You go back to Sakaar, and there's a lot of grays, a lot of browns. So... That's just me. That's just my kind of nitpicking of it. But a uh, couple more positives. Uh, Sakaar just in general. I love the design of Sakaar. And it's so radically different from the Sakaar of the comics, where in Planet Hulk, Sakaar is very much like a... Uh, it takes a lot of, I think personally, a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of influence from films like Gladiator, um, a lot of Roman architecture, you know, alien versions of it, but a lot of Roman-style gladiatorial architecture. And I think that what they decided to do here, making it more space, more weird, uh, is great. And Sakaar really feels alive. And I think that we should have gotten more time with it because that was my favorite parts of the film. And also just the rest of the cast is so, so good. Uh, Tom Hiddleston's Loki, I think, um, towards the end of his tenure, was really kind of starting to become one note, so I liked that he kind of got to relax a little bit more in this film and really got to uh, be a little bit more casual with his Loki. Um, Bruce Banner, I know for a lot of people, people were starting to get kind of sick of him. Uh, at this point, but I like how he bounces off of Thor. The two of them have great chemistry together, and he's really, really fun. Uh, Valkyrie, Valkyrie, played by Tessa Thompson, is a fantastic, an absolutely fantastic addition, and I'm really excited that it looks like she's going to be showing back up in Endgame. And for me, I've, I've told people this before, if Chris Hemsworth's tenure as Thor is over and we do see him hang up the hammer, I would love to see them adapt the uh, Jane Foster Thor uh, arc from the comics written by Jason Aaron with art by Russell Donnerman, except with Valkyrie in the role, because there's so much potential with her as a character. I really want to see where we can go with her. Also, uh, Jeff Goldblum is the Grandmaster. is fantastic, uh, just because he's basically just Jeff Goldblum in space. And then uh, Hela. Hela is a great villain. Uh, I think she really shows a dark reflection of Thor, but not in the way that in the Phase 1 it was like, oh, you gotta fight somebody with your exact skill set. Hela's very different in both her skill set and her ideology from both Thor and Loki, so I like that she gives that contrast. So... All of those things included. Oh, and Korg. Korg and Meek, fantastic. Amazing. Um, I'm really hoping they survive. <laughs> so, um, 
yeah, that is number four. Number three is Captain America Civil War. And I'm going to tell you exactly why it's in the top three. Um, because Captain America Civil War, when you look at it from the perspective of Tony, when you look at from the perspective of Captain America, when you look at it from the perspective of the Avengers, this is the most important film in the MCU. Period. Bar none, full stop. This is the most important film in the MCU because this is what sets the stage for everything that comes after it. Everything that comes after it. This is the film that tore the Avengers apart, that left Earth weakened, that split everybody up, that scattered them to the winds, and made them vulnerable enough for Infinity War to even take place. Because if Civil War doesn't happen, the Avengers are a united front, and I think they defeat Thanos in Infinity War. Um, so this film really brings so much and this is the Russo brothers firing on all cylinders where everyone looked at this and said oh yeah they could do an Avengers movie because they basically just did here this is what I consider Avengers 2.5 so I absolutely adore this movie and for a lot of people the reason that they love this movie is the airport battle and that's totally fair because the airport battle is incredible. It is something that we have never seen before. That amount of heroes fighting each other um, is just, it's, it's cinematic history. Much like, you know, Infinity War, much like Endgame, this film was groundbreaking for the superhero genre with balancing all of these characters, having them all on screen, giving them all time. It really allowed them to... Uh, shine but in a different way than Avengers because all of these characters were given pathos all these characters were given a reason to be there all these characters were shown depth um, the there are negatives um, I've got one negative and then the dreaded positive negative here uh, one negative is there's a lot of coincidences uh, Baron Zemo's plan who I'll just go ahead and say is the positive negative is Baron Zemo but Baron Zemo's plan has a lot of coincidences, a lot of, oh, I didn't think it was going to go as smoothly as it should have, but here we are. And that happens a lot in the film, but I'm willing to look past that because of the narrative, because of what happens and how the characters react to all these things happening. Uh, Baron Zemo is a really interesting villain. I really hope we get to see him again. I don't know... If we will, because uh, I haven't seen Endgame yet, but um, I'll be able to kind of have a better perspective on that once I uh, once I do see the film. But I'm really, really, really hoping that we get another shot at Baron Zemo because I loved what Daniel Brühl did with this character in this film without any kind of backing, without the Masters of Evil, anything like that. I would love to see him in more of a leadership role. Also... Um, big uh big positive here we get the debuts of both black panther and spider-man two of the characters who are going to be leading the mcu going forward um i really loved the use of both of them here uh some people have said and i can kind of see that um post-civil war we've kind of lost some of the uh I guess the potential that we see in Spider-Man in this film, because I think this is a perfect use of him. He's short, sweet, to the point. We get to know him, we get to see his power set, and he's fun. And we don't really 
I've heard that we don't really see that kind of spirit in him again in the later films, and I can kind of agree with that, but overall, his appearance here is fantastic. In Black Panther, T'Challa is incredible in this film. He has an arc, just as much as Tony and Steve do, with his arc being based on revenge and finally finding closure, at least until Black Panther, uh, finally finding closure on his father's murder um, by the end of the film and refusing to let Zemo kill himself and be a one-off villain. Um, he's just, he's fantastic. His fight scenes, his choreography is great as well. Um, I also love how personal and intimate the final act is in this film. To set the stage, as I'm sure we already have before, and if you of course, you've been watching these films, you know. Um, this is, you know, Cap and Bucky. Iron Man's been pursuing them this entire time, but they're reuniting, and it looks like they're finally going to come together to fight these fabled super soldiers of Hydra. But when they arrive at this base in the Arctic, they find that super soldiers have already been killed. They were not part of Zemo's plan. Zemo's plan, as it turns out, was to get all of them together and then show them security footage of Bucky killing Steve's parents while under the influence of Hydra as the Winter Soldier. And when Tony confronts Steve about, did you know, uh, Steve initially lies. He lies. And this film is really great for Steve's character. I'll get to that in a second. But um, after Tony pushes him, Steve reveals, yes, he did know. And then just all hell breaks loose. Tony is so focused on killing Bucky. This whole time he's just been focused on bringing Bucky to justice, but now he's focused on killing the man who killed his mother. And it's just, it's so intimate and personal and sad because we've gotten to this point. We've seen Cap and Steve fight alongside each other. We've seen them have different ideologies, but they always come together as friends. But now they're fighting, and Tony's fighting to kill. And the last couple moments after uh, Steve and Bucky are able to finally overpower Tony, just barely, where Steve lifts up the, the shield, Tony thinks, he legit thinks Steve is going to kill him. So he puts up his hands, Tony brings the shield down on his arc reactor, shutting down his armor, and then begins to bring Bucky to his feet and leave and Tony's shouting at him you know you don't deserve that shield my father made that shield and Steve drops the shield on the ground and it's one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the entire MCU because he's giving up he has chosen his friend over the Avengers he has destroyed the Avengers for the last bits of his previous life and it is Gen like genuinely one of the most heartbreaking films in the entire MCU because you see both sides. You see both sides of the conflict. And I adore being able to have the narrative show you that not everything is black and white. And what I love most about this film is that there are true consequences. Um, when you look at the MCU, a lot of times you'll see that uh, we, we kind of live in a consequence-free uh, MCU for the most part, but this film really showed the true consequences that could happen in the MCU. And I, again, I think that without the without Civil War happening, Infinity War would not have gone as it did. And I think that is just 
incredible. If you could pick one point in the entire MCU to change that would drastically change everything that happened after it, Civil War is that point. And that is why it is the most important film in the MCU. However, it's not the best film in the MCU. So at number two, we're going to move right along to number two, which is Avengers Infinity War. This was tough. These top two changed about three or four times, but I had to settle on Avengers Infinity War being number two. And the biggest positive out of all of it is Thanos. Thanos is an incredible character and most likely the greatest villain in the entire MCU. Um, he immediately establishes himself with that powerful opening of the uh, the ship of Asgardians that we had previously just seen in Thor Ragnarok, just being decimated by him and his Black Order. And it is heartbreaking watching him kill Heimdall, watching him choke out Loki, and destroying the ship after taking the t the, uh, the, the Tesseract slash the Space Stone. Um, Thanos is really genuinely a Darth Vader level character. Um, he has risen above his status in the comics. He has risen above the uh, comic book geek hemisphere where I heard, I genuinely heard, I was at uh, my day job the other day, and I genuinely heard a had-to-be-60-year-old woman talking to her I, I think it was like her nephew or her son or whatever, and she, and the words, kind of like Thanos, left her lips, and I knew that Thanos is permanently ingrained in cinema history. Thanos is an incredible character, played by Josh Brolin. He has amazing, amazing pathos. I keep saying that word, but it's so important when you get that kind of quality in a character where you see where they're coming from. Not everything is black and white. There are many, 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 many shades of gray. And Avengers Infinity War really is Thanos' story. It really is his film. And you feel it every single time he gets a stone. You feel this oncoming sense of dread, but also you are just amazed by the determination and the amount of drive that Thanos has to complete his goals. He genuinely thinks he is going to be helping the universe by doing what he does. And by the time the end of the movie rolls around and he's sitting on his farm, smiling over the sunrise on a thankful universe, um, it's just, it's incredible. It's an incredible feeling on top of the roller coaster ride that is this film. And Thanos wins. Thanos wins in the end. And to, uh, from his point of view, as well as others, you know, he was the hero of the story. And he won. So Thanos is incredible. Um, I also love how everything really comes together. At this point last year, this was the culmination of the entire MCU. This was everybody who has ever had a main uh, hand in the MCU coming together to fight this threat. And so you got to see crossovers that you'd never seen before. Um, Thor and the Guardians, the Guardians and Tony, uh, all of these characters that you had never in your wildest dreams could see standing side by side, they did. And it was fantastic. Um, however, as a negative, that does mean that there were so many heroes to put in and almost uh, too many heroes. There's too many heroes and not enough time. So... 
Um, unfortunately, because of all the heroes that we do have to bring in and makes, make important, we don't get enough time with those heroes to really uh, give them the kind of focus that Civil War had with a smaller cast. And that, I'm assuming, Endgame is going to have with a smaller main cast of it just being the uh, main six, or the original six. So that is a negative. One more negative is the... As much as I love the Battle of Wakanda, the war on Wakanda, um, it's it's kind of what we've already seen before, which in the first Avengers was a battle with our heroes versus nameless, faceless hordes of creatures. Uh, the Outriders are cool characters, but they are exactly what the Chitari are, just without just with less tech. So I, uh, yeah, it's it's a great scene. And there's a lot of great moments in the Battle of Wakanda, but the fact that they're just fighting against these nameless, faceless hordes of Outriders really brings it down. However, those are the negatives out of the way. Um, I love the character interactions. Everyone meeting for the first time or seeing each other again after a long time. The uh, banter back and forth between Doctor Strange and Tony Stark, who are essentially the same person, just having taken different paths uh, is fantastic you get the reunion of thor and cap who haven't seen each other in a long long time um and their banter back and forth the just sadness between bruce banner and tony stark when they see each other again is incredible and then of course this all leads up to the final moments when thor doesn't go for the head and thanos snaps and i swear to god i thought the movie ended right there when, it, when he snapped, the screen faded to white, I thought it was over. I thought we were just going to get credits, and we we weren't going to get a follow-up until Endgame. I'm glad that it didn't, but I can also see how it would be an incredibly jarring feeling to just not know what happened. So, I loved the last bits where we're seeing everyone fade away. Um, Thanos gets that moment with Gamora in the Soul Stone, which I believe we're going to see again. Um... I have a feeling that everyone who was dusted is probably trapped inside the Soul Stone, but we'll see. Again, haven't seen Endgame yet, but um, just the ending is so powerful. Just everyone dying, well, not everyone, but half of everyone dying. Um, the Avengers having been truly defeated for the first time ever in the history of the MCU. Um, they've bounced back before, but not like this. They've never suffered loss like this before. Um, we see Thanos, you know, sitting on his farm, and then it just cuts to black, and we get this somber piano music. And it is, whoo, it is just heartbreaking. It is one of the most emotionally stirring endings, I think, of the entire MCU. And... A lot of people, including myself, like really look at this and call this kind of the MCU's Empire Strikes Back. And that's exactly what this is. The Empire Strikes Back ends with them having lost. They lost Han. Luke lost a hand. They are backpedaling from the Empire now, having just barely escaped Cloud City. And the ending is just this sad melancholy. And these characters are trying to decide what to do next. And that's exactly what the feeling is at the end of this film. The Avengers have no idea what's happened. They have no idea the ramifications of the just, oh, of the 
snapping or the decimation or how, however you want to call it, um, they lost, and it is some is a huge, the biggest cliffhanger in MCU history, um, which will hopefully and finally be picked up with Endgame and give us a satisfying conclusion. But yeah, this film in itself is an experience. It is the part one of a two-part story that is going to kind of culminate in Endgame, and I am super excited, but this film really is an experience more than a film. But it is not the best film in the MCU, and I'm sure if you know anything about me, you knew this was coming, but the best film in the MCU, in my opinion, the number one film in the MCU is Captain America, The Winter Soldier. This film, I could spend two hours talking about just this film. I won't, but I could. This film really changed the game. This is where we realized, oh, hey, Marvel movies can be more than just comic book movies. They can be thrillers, they can be comedies, they can be heist films, they can be genre films just starring superheroes. And this also legitimized Captain America as a character. He got kind of a a uh, an okay start in First Avenger and got kind of a, a rough treatment in the First Avengers movie. But this was the film where it really just like Thor Ragnarok, recontextualized the character and really made it his own, his being Chris Evans. He shines in this film. He's so, so good. Uh, This also had the Hydra twist, where we find out that S.H.I.E.L.D. has been Hydra this whole time and that Steve has been effectively working for Hydra since he came out of the ice. Uh, We also get the inclusions of Black Widow and Falcon. Um, Falcon, played by Anthony Mackie, is really just an incredible addition to the team. Uh, Anthony Mackie took a character who's really dumb in uh, just concept and made him fun, made him exciting. Uh, We also got the Winter Soldier, the title character, uh, reviving Bucky. Basically, this adapts one of Cap's most famous storylines. And it's just, it's fantastic. He, the use of him, his really unsettling theme is really cool. Um, he's just so good as an antagonist, being that dark reflection of Captain America without really being that, oh, you know, he's the exact same skill set and all this stuff. But he's an incredible antagonist. They use him perfectly. This is similar to before Thanos. This was what everyone was saying, like, oh, this is like Marvel's Darth Vader. And he really is an iconic, this version of him. As the time went on, um, Bucky became more of a sympathetic character. He became more uh, likable just overall. But this was when he was a basically a Terminator. He was a killing machine. And let us not forget that this also was the Russo brothers officially entering the game when it comes to the MCU. This was their first film in the MCU scope. And as they've said in interviews, Winter Soldier really was chapter one of a... Th- Uh, three or four arc story for Cap with of course the final uh, kind of part of that story being in Endgame so when we look back on the whole saga for them the Russo saga essentially it's Winter Soldier, Civil War Infinity War and Endgame it should all become one solid story Um, 
this film has so many good things going for it. I know I've been trying to be really objective and give positives and negatives. I can't find a negative in this movie. I love every single bit of it. Um, it's a thriller. It's exciting. It's funny. Um, nobody is taken for granted. The villain is okay, but you also get um, his ideology behind it. The whole twist of you know Hydra being S.H.I.E.L.D. I think really does a good job to not only um, keep the audience on their toes, but also kind of overshadows any weaknesses that uh, Alexander Pierce might have as a villain. I just... I completely adore this movie. Everything about it is so good. It's so watchable. I watched it again uh, this morning, so I am so in for this movie. And that is our completed list. That is all 21 MCU films ranked 21 to 1. To recap, I know I did a recap already, but I'm just going to do it just for completionist's sake. At 21 is Thor The Dark World, number 20 is The Incredible Hulk, number 19 is Iron Man 2, number 18 is Iron Man 3, number 17 is Thor, number 16 is Doctor Strange, number 15 is Ant-Man and the Wasp, number 14 is Avengers Age of Ultron, number 13 is Captain America The First Avenger, number 12 is Captain Marvel, number 11 is Iron Man, number 10 is Ant-Man, number 9 is Black Panther, number 8 is Spider-Man Homecoming, number 7 is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, number 6 is Guardians of the Galaxy, number 5 is Avengers Assemble, number Number four is Thor Ragnarok. Number three is Captain America Civil War. Number two is Avengers Infinity War. And number one is Captain America the Winter Soldier. Thank you for being on this ride with me. Uh, it's been a blast getting to kind of go back to these films in the lead up to Endgame, recount them, really rank them. The whole thing has been a blast. If you agree with the list, please let me know. If you disagree with the list, especially if you disagree, please let me know. I would love to get everyone's uh, perspective on what their top five would be. Let me know what your top five of the MCU is. If you want to rank them all, rank them all, but definitely let me know what your top five list is for the MCU. You can let me know on Instagram or Twitter at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. Or through email, because I'm an old man and I still read emails to GeekSplained at gmail.com. Uh, this, I can already tell, is a very, very long episode. A little bit longer than we normally do, so I'm going to go ahead and send us off. Endgame, as of the uh, release of this episode, as of the recording of this episode, is releasing Thursday night. I am so excited about it. I cannot wait to see this film. I'm going to see it more than one time per probably this weekend so um expect a spoiler free ish um first reactions and everything uh this weekend and then next week will be a follow-up full spoiler filled review um but for now uh just it's been a ride guys it has been an incredible ride i loved getting to kind of talk about walk down you know memory lane with the mcu and talk with you guys about just the mcu in general because it's such a great experience just getting all these people together from all over the world all walks of life to come and experience this film and this franchise it's just it's inspiring and it really speaks to how the cinematic medium can bring people together and how nerds can all come together of all shapes and sizes uh how nerds can be brought together to enjoy something as incredible as the conclusion of the infinity saga of the russo saga of the mcu as we know it of phase three all of that 
So uh, definitely stay tuned next week for our review. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck to us all on Endgame, and we will see you next time.